Hey everybody, welcome to Bible Prophecy Talk. Um, today, I wanted to talk about the theory that Solomon's temple and the uh, Herodian temple, the one uh, that was there when Jesus uh, was in his first century ministry, did not rest on what we currently call the Temple Mount, where the Dome of the Rock is, the Muslim uh, uh, site, uh, but rather was in the city of David, which when I first heard this theory, I thought the city of David was like somewhere not in Jerusalem, but the city of David is actually about 600 feet away from the current Temple Mount. So we're just talking about, you know, pretty close, 600 feet away, uh, but not in that what we're calling the Temple Mount. Um, just for clarification of what the city of David was, and I am doing this as a video for you audio podcasters, it obviously would be much more helpful for you to go watch the video on the YouTube channel, which I will link in the description of this podcast, but uh, I'll try to be as descriptive as possible. So the the we think of the old Jerusalem as a walled city, and it was a walled city for sure, and the, they believe that the Temple Mount was within that walled city. The city of David was also a walled city connected basically to the old city of Jerusalem. Um, so we're not talking about some faraway city not in Jerusalem. For all intents and purposes, the city of David is in Jerusalem. It's really, really close to the center of Jerusalem, in fact. Um, so the idea is, I'm going to give you the broad strokes of this theory, and I guess I should back up to where it first kind of came from. It looks like somebody named Martin, I can't remember his first name, came up with this theory originally. Uh, it was picked up by others, including Robert uh, Cornuke, uh, Robert Cornuke is a guy kind of known for a lot of this biblical archaeology stuff. He sort of uh, did a lot of the things with Mount Sinai and uh, the Ark of the Covenant and some other kind of things. Anyway, he he wrote a book called The Temple. There's also a documentary uh, produced by Koinonia House, uh, Chuck Missler's outfit, uh, called The Temple. Same title, Bob Cornuke. You can, I'll link it in the show notes, but you can also look it up. It's a really good way to sort of overview of most of the things I'm going to cover. But really what I'd like to do in this uh, in this video is not just give you an overview of the theory itself, but really kind of go over some of the pros and cons of the theory, because like anything, uh, it's got detractors. And I listen to the other side, which I always encourage people to do, um, is to listen to the best people you can on the other side. And honestly, the arguments that I heard sounded uh, like arguments of people on the wrong side. And I'll go over what I mean by all that when we get into it. So broad strokes first. Let's first talk about what is the current, well, I'm not going to go into this in much detail, but just so you know, the current thing that we call the the Temple Mount, um, what is that if it's not the Temple Mount? Well, under this theory, it is Fort Antonia. Fort Antonia was something that the Roman legions uh, the Roman Empire built, well, technically it was expanded by Herod, uh, which uh, he named Antonia because of his patron, Mark Antony. Anyway, so this was, the 36-acre site was typical of Roman forts that would house a legion. They were 36, 35, 36. We see similar things at Baalbek. In fact, we see them all over the Roman world is uh, structures exactly like this. These were forts where legions would go to cities, especially cities that were, this is kind of like building a military base and like America does in some other country. That's what Fort Antonia was. And that's why it was actually still standing even after 70 AD when everything in the whole city was destroyed is because they didn't destroy their own fort from which they based that attack on 70 AD from. 
But um, you can see in this picture kind of a picture of what that would look like. And Fort Antonia was here, it would house about 6,000 troops, 4,000 sort of uh, uh, camp followers. And there were, it, Josephus says there was like multiple cities in Fort Antonia. Um, it was connected to the temple by a 600-foot-long bridge, so it was literally connected to the temple, and that was not by accident, so that the Roman soldiers could uh, deal with problems at the temple. In fact, there's a scene in the Bible in which they run down to the temple uh, to deal with a problem that Paul was making, but we'll get into that later. The temple itself was um, on a platform, as I say, 600 feet to, to uh, that side, which would technically be in the city of David. We can see uh, this. So, we're going to talk about the theories about this, and I want to start with something that probably should go ahead and end the debate, but it, it won't, which is that the Bible says that the, the temple was built in the city of David, in, and that Zion refers to a hill in the city of David. In other words, nobody is going to say that for, or what we're calling for Antonia here, that what they'll call the temple mount is in the city of David. It's not. No one would argue that. But the temple, the Bible says, is in the city of David uh, at the threshing floor, as we're going to see. Let's go through the arguments first to show you what I mean with that. So this is a top-level argument here. Starting in 2 Samuel 5, verse 7 says, but David captured the fortress of Zion. That is the city of David. So first, let's go back here to the city of David. This this walled city, apparently, I don't know if it was walled, actually don't know, but it was a city when David took it. One of the reasons, in fact, that David probably took it is because, as we're going to see later, a big part of this theory is that it was on a big spring, the Gihon Spring, a water source in the desert, right? So uh, it, was a, it was a big deal. But anyway, David, in his conquest, takes this area. Um as in conquest. So, but David conquered the fortress of Zion, that is the city of David. So Zion, the Bible says, that is the city of David. So we're connecting Zion to the city of David. Uh, let's move on to 2 Samuel 24. And in verse 18, it says, So Gad went to David that day and told him, Go up and build an altar for the Lord on the threshing floor of Ara Una, the Jebusite. So David went up uh, as Gad instructed. What we can gather from this puzzle piece is that after the conquest uh, of the Jebusite city, the city of David, which he renamed, um, the Lord said, yeah, I don't want anybody thinking that you got this, what I'm going to turn into the temple mount for free. I want you to buy it from this Jebusite, this guy, Arahuna. I want you to go give him some money. And remember the scene, uh, Arahuna is like, hey, look, you can take whatever you want. And David's like, no, I want to pay you and I want to pay you good for this threshing floor. So we know, A, the threshing floor uh, bought from Arahuna, the Jebusite, is where God told him to build an altar. Okay, moving on to 2 Chronicles 3.1. Here it's a little confusing because it does call Arahuna now Ornon. There's a... Uh, footnote here. It's it's essentially about a Hebrew word transliteration situation. But anyway, it just calls him by a different name. But it says, Solomon began building the Lord's temple in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to his father, David. This was the place that David prepared at the threshing floor of Ornon, the Jeb Jebusite. So what do we got here? We know that the temple uh, Solomon's temple, that's where he's building this temple, is on Mount Moriah, 
So Mount Moriah is what? Well, Mount Moriah is the place that David prepared at the threshing floor of Ornon the Jebusite. So we've got the threshing floor Ornon, which the other verses have clearly told us are both Zion and in the city of David. Um, this is something that uh, other places have uh, uh, attested to. We've got a quote here from Eusebius, a very early third century uh, uh, witness to this. He says, the hill called Zion in Jerusalem, the buildings there, that is to say the temple and the Holy of Holies, the altar and whatever else was there uh, dedicated to the glory of the Lord have been utterly removed or shaken in fulfillment of the word. Their ancient holy place at any rate and their temple are to this day as much destroyed as, as Sodom. Now, this is a little out of place here. We're going to get into more of this idea that Jesus said not one stone would be left of uh, the temple, and yet we've got many, many stones left of the temple mount, but literally none left of the that area. And, but we'll talk about that later. It's a little bit out of place here. Uh, going, going to Micah 3.12 on this puzzle piece quest. Therefore, because of you, Zion will be plowed like a field. Jerusalem will, will become a heap of rubble and a temple hill a mount overgrown with thickets. So this is a prophecy that the temple hill will be overgrown with thickets when it's destroyed, that, that it will be plowed like a field. And remember this, remember Jesus said that, um, that uh, the, the temple, not one stone would be left on another. And that was actually fulfilled because when the Romans destroyed the temple, um, basically long story short, they kind of did it hastily and it kind of caught fire this huge treasury with so much gold you can't even imagine in the temple and uh this is all all described by an eyewitness josephus who said that the treasury actually burned uh with all this gold in it and the problem was all that melted gold seeped all through the cracks of the 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 temple and the foundation so they literally dug it up to the last foundation to get the gold uh on all through the temple. In fact, the market of gold apparently dropped significantly in the ancient world after that so much gold came on the market. And it was because of that. But anyway, I'm showing a picture now of this is this is the city of David here. Uh, as you can see, it's just fields. It's just terraced fields. This literally is a fulfillment of Bible prophecy. This, if the Bible says that this temple mount, which is apparently still standing, is is still there, then how does that explain um, anything about the prophecy? Certainly, this was never a field uh, since Herod. This has been there because the Romans didn't destroy their fort, which is what Josephus says, but again, we'll get to that in a minute. So on this first part, all I really wanted to point out was the biblical sort of uh, progression that should end the argument, which is that the, the temple, according to the Bible, is built in Zion, it was built on the threshing floor of Ornan, and that the that Solomon built the temple on that that place in the city of David. Therefore, there needs to really be no other argument that there there the, if the temple was in the city of David, on the threshing floor of Ornan, and the Ornan the uh, threshing floor was in the city of David, then it isn't in what we currently call the the uh, Temple Mount. And as we're going to see when we get into counter arguments, the arguments against that are really, really bad. The ones that what they'll try to say to get around that obvious problem is not good. So we'll get to that later. Okay, so this next section is all about water. And it's really a big argument in this case because in the city of David, there's a water source, the Gihon Springs. As I said, it was probably one of the reasons that David found this area to be worth conquering. 
the Gallatin Springs was discovered not too uh, uh, far away. About 1865, Charles Warren really uh, opened it up, and it's what we call what well, Hezekiah's Tunnel, and and goes to the Gion Springs. Hezekiah built the tunnel uh, to allow water to get into the heart of the uh, city for sieges and uh, things like that. So um, there is everybody agrees there's water under what I'm proposing is the Temple Mount. Um, but no natural water source under what is believed to be the, the current Temple Mount. And that's a big problem for lots of reasons. The first is the incredible need of water in uh, Temple service. And this is just any water. It's living water. We're looking at a picture here of a artist ren rendering of the uh, old temple in this huge basin. What is that? Probably two or three people high huge bronze basin that you would need to fill with water, quote, living water every day. And it would be emptied into these smaller basins that would be used for various things in the temple. There would be a lot of blood, obviously, in a temple that would need to be washed away. Ritual uh, cleansing, we know from the biblical times, are extremely important. And not just a little bit important, it's, it's extremely important, especially for the high priest, because they, if they had to go down to the Gihon Springs to get this water... And then walk up the hill. Let's see if I can get a good here. So this is where the spring would be. They got to walk a quarter mile up a hill to do the temple services. They would be ritually unclean by that time. All the dust and whatever, or who knows what else, would make them ritually unclean. Have to go back. It would just be incredibly inefficient. Now, if God told you to build it here, you'd have to work around that. But what, what I'm trying to say is that I don't think that they did. So in addition to having to bring water up to fill that basin every day, um, there would be need for water for lots of different sacrifices. There is, uh, for example, a sacrifice of birds, a particular sacrifice needs living water as well as the red heifer sacrifice. In any case, um, the, the concept really becomes all about water. People that argue against this now are on the defensive. If they're trying to argue how their Fort Antonia 36 acre site here, how did it have water because they're saying the temple was on that. So where was its water coming from? And they will point out things that, first of all, are easily answered if this was Fort Antonia. They'll say, well, there were huge water cisterns underneath uh, this platform, Fort Antonia. What I'm, I'm just going to refer to the what we call temple platform Fort Antonia from here on out. Uh, there are big plate, you know, reservoirs of water, you know, man-made reservoirs that you could dump water in there and sort of take it out like a well. So that's where they say they got the wet, the water. Well, again, the question is, well, where do you get the water to put into there? Now, the Romans needed water too. Obviously, this is if this is a legion, you've got uh, four or six thousand troops and four thousand other camp followers that you need to a have baths and drink and eat food and all kinds of stuff that they're going to need a huge amount of water probably more water than they're going to need and what they did uh is they built an aqueduct a very roman thing to do they built an aqueduct from a uh, a water source uh so i'm looking here at a um a graphic showing what's called the upper and lower aqueducts. This lower one went to the Temple Mount. And it, so aqueduct would be basically a long ancient Roman trench, I guess you will, with plaster or whatever that would carry water from one place to another across the desert in this case from these pools that are sometimes called Solomon's Pools. And that might be a, an argument in somebody's favor. Of course, it's irrelevant. I mean, 
it's irrelevant in the sense that if Solomon had anything to do with these pools uh, in tradition, he built it so one of his many wives could bathe and all these things. There is no concept that I know of that Solomon built an aqueduct, although I just read something from a person who's desperately arguing against this theory that Solomon did build an aqueduct, but um, there is, as far as I can tell, absolutely no evidence for that. So the aqueduct that is... Uh, the lower aqueduct is built in the Hasmonean era, the sort of the no man's land uh, between that and really Herod, um, and be- between that and the Romans, basically. And so late Hasmonean, which crosses over perfectly with the construction of the Antonia for- Fortress, according to even what everybody, I mean, they think the Antonian fortress was just some weird little thing on the corner of the building. It was never one stone has actually been found for anything looking like that. But yet that's what they believe it is. It's almost like a, uh, a joke really. Um, and we'll get into that as we talk about the Antonian fortress. But what I want to want you to know here is that they're understanding the, the, the construction of this to be around uh, 30, 31 BCE which is late Hasmonean, which everybody agrees these aqueducts were late Hasmonean. So it matches up with the aqueducts and the construction of the uh, of the Antonian fortress. So we have even by their own admissions, um, you know that that's a, that's a match. Bring water to this massive thirty six acre uh, fort uh, that you would need to house so many legions. So just to recap, the Gihon Springs. Uh, are under the proposed, what I'm proposing is the the site of the temple. That was right uh, where the temple is. Just a couple uh, things to look at this in history. We see Tacitus, who was a Roman historian. The temple was built like a citadel with walls of its own, which were constructed with more care and effort than any of the rest. The very colonnades about the temple made a splendid defense. Within the enclosure is an ever-flowing spring an ever-flowing spring within the enclosure of the temple. Um, and that would would have been true. A lot of the things that we'll talk about in archaeology was that there was a temple directly, it was built on top of the spring, and there were a lot of little sort of corridors and water flowing out. There's actually some really cool stuff that's happening with archaeology about how like these these channels would flow, the spring water would, would feed these trenches basically to clean blood out. It's just a really interesting thing. So Tacitus says that the temple has within it an ever ever flowing spring. That's important. Even this guy who's trying to quote against it, he, he's quoting a guy who of uh, uh Aristeus, who's probably a pseudepigrapha, but in any case was was early. And he says uh, and there's an inexhaustible supply of water because of an un- abundant natural spring. This guy says, oh, this guy didn't know what he was talking about. It wasn't a natural spring. It was an aqueduct, as if, as if this ancient eyewitness was so stupid he didn't know the difference between an aqueduct and a spring. Nevertheless, that's the state of arguing against this. But uh, so, yeah. Um, so, yeah. Gion Spring, City of David, was in the City of David. Water was needed for washing. Water was needed for sacrifice. Water was needed for filling that giant labor. No aqueducts during Solomon's period. Period. I don't think anybody actually argues that this aqueduct just wasn't in Solomon's period. There is no evidence for an aqueduct that would be necessary because the, essentially everything now rests on this idea because there is, I think, a late, maybe it's in, I don't know, there's like a late thing maybe in the Talmud or something like that that says something about 
water like that, but it's like, you know, 200 years after the fact when they were probably already dealing with the fact that they'd lost the temple and trying to explain where the temple was and the rest of it. But there's no archaeological evidence for this aqueduct existing before the Hasmonean period, certainly not for Solomon's temple. So now you've got the question, how did Solomon and the other temples get any water before the aqueduct, before the, the, the Hasmonean period? Okay, so the next aspect let's talk about is Fort Antonia. Um, so, as I say, this is for the the legion. We know some legions definitely stayed here. In Josephus's account of the destruction of Jerusalem, uh, so much of the battle was waged from Fort Antonia. This is where like Titus would go back here and sleep and stuff like that while the war was going on. And really, I don't think you can actually understand Josephus's account of the destruction of Jerusalem and their last stand in this temple and this whole area right here being in such a crucial part of this battle. Uh, but because the Romans eventually took Fort Antonia back and waged the entire war from this platform, really from this platform. And this whole area was just a smoking ruin. People, when they finally were on these colonnades, were like getting burned alive. It was just a mess. But it, it comes alive, Josephus' account, if you take this into account. Anyway, I didn't mean to start like that. Let's just go through, uh, talk about some things, some, some arguments for Fort for Antonia. So the official story is that Fort Antonia is this uh, little tiny tiny thing here on the on the northwest corner of the what we call the temple mount today uh they would say and of course obviously it's it's tiny it probably could barely hold 600 men certainly nobody would argue that it could hold a legion so right now we've got a problem did did jerusalem only have 600 soldiers stationed there or did it have 6,000 plus another 4,000 because that's a huge difference. Where are the Roman soldiers going to stay in Jerusalem? So a few things here. A lot of people will... Let, let's first get the idea straight from Josephus. Now, Josephus said that uh, there was a, a tagma, a legion... Excuse me, I'm trying to find the quote here, and I can't seem to find it. Uh, in any case... Josephus said that there was a, a legion stationed there. Now, a lot of people have recently just changed Josephus's words, and you're going to actually find this in a lot of things with Josephus and other writers, that they admit that they did. Like, you can go back and, and find out what the original Josephus was. You know, there's lots of manuscripts of Josephus that you can check the earliest ones or whatever. He said tagma. He said a legion. He did not say a cohort, which is something like whatever that is, 600, 400, 600 men or whatever cohort is, I can't remember, but it's definitely not 6,000 men. So a lot of people, I was listening to one refutation of this guy, and he tells his listeners at this conference that uh, they're basing this whole thing on a mistranslation, and really, there was never a legion in Jerusalem, it was only a cohort. But that is the mistranslation. And I, I don't want to base too much on that, because honestly, it's really hard for me to go back. I'm not going to go check the original manuscripts of Josephus or whatever. But I don't think we need to. I think that we can logically think through through this as well. Now, we know a couple things for sure. The Bible tells us that at one point, Paul, during a feast time, is escorted out of Jerusalem by like 400 Roman troops. And it's highly unlikely that Paul's going to get escorted by 400 plus troops, leaving only 200 troops to guard all of Jerusalem during a feast day. 
that that's an insane number of people to devote to Paul, even if he was a high value target or dangerous or whatever. But it's it's not that inconsequential if you've got 6,000 troops to deal with. It, it's, it's a minor point. I suppose you could make the case that maybe they would do that. But let's just talk, talk it through again. Um, we know, for example, that Jerusalem was an incredibly rebellious city. And I guess I should start off by saying, you know, not every city in the Roman Empire had a, a permanent base built you know, a military base built in it. But there were a lot of cities that did in, in, in the Roman world. And I do have some pictures here of forts, permanent forts of Romans. And you can see they're about 36 acres. They got gates and they got the whole thing that we know that the, the, the Temple Mount does. There's no doubt that the Temple Mount was grander than the other. And that was for a few reasons. You can see these forts here on their own more or less flat ground. They did not have to have what the Temple Mount had to have, which was huge retaining walls to be built in order to build, make a flat surface. Massive, massive retaining walls had to be built to make a flat surface on this hill. And that's what Herod did. He expanded this and he made a standard, and he named it Antonia, a uh, standard place for a Roman permanent base. Herod was a client king, subservient to Romans. That was his gig. And uh, he, was, he knew who buttered his bread, as it were. So just a few pictures of, of fortresses of the Romans during that time period, just to show you the dimensions are uh, the same. Um, okay, so a couple things. First, I guess, uh, I guess we were on the idea of Roman troop numbers. I saw one guy had said that... Um, the that was too many people to be uh, to be there. Why would the what the Romans need six thousand people or need a bigger space for just six thousand people? Where on a feast day, the temple might see you know a hundred thousand people needing to make sacrifices. His argument is essentially is that on feast days there were going to be so many people coming from all around the world that needed to go to the Temple Mount. So why would the Temple Mount be smaller than Fort Antonia? It needs to see a hundred thousand people. The Fort Antonia only needed to have this is whatever amount of, of soldiers. But that argument is nonsense, of course, because there would be there would never be the entire amount of people needed to be in the temple in there at one time, no matter what scenario you're talking about. Um, there would be you know a system to to cycle through that many people during feast days. I don't know what that system would be, but a line, a queue, might be a good place to start. Um, but I would argue, actually, yes, if you, have if you have a city that is prone to a pilgrimage like that, where you can have hundreds of thousands in it, and it's already known for being one of the most rebellious cities in the Roman Empire, which is why you build permanent bases, uh, or one of the reasons anyway, then yeah, you need a you need a lot of soldiers in that place, and they and, and worse, you know, Jesus going when his family tried to go to Jerusalem for a feast day, they had to stay no room for for them. They had to stay in the in the uh, manger, right? Because all the hotels, as it were, were taken up on the feast days. Was, people were in in town from all over the place. So what do you do? What are the soldiers supposed to do? Are they supposed to go knock on doors and say, "Hey, can we stay in, stay with you guys? We got sent here. They sent a whole bunch of extra troops here uh, because there's a lot more people here. Can we stay with you? Of course not. They got a military base, and if for no other reason, let's just assume for the sake of argument, which I really don't think is true, that Josephus did said did say that a, the permanent number of troops stationed in Jerusalem was only 600 troops, then you still, we still know that a legion was brought there for feast days. So just answering the question, where are those guys going during the feast days? 
is uh, a big question that has no historical answer. Um, let's see. Another thing is that the the official story for where Antonia is, uh, you know, the northwest corner of this tiny, teeny, itsy bitsy thing here. No archaeological evidence has ever been found for that. For that fort has never ever been found. Which is weird because now let's read some of these things that these people would say about Fort Antonia in the ancient times. This is from the Maccabean Revolt. And this is a leader of the Jews. This is just after Jerusalem had been destroyed. And, uh, or not Maccabean Revolt. Revolt. This is, uh, this is after that, the uh, Masada and all that stuff. So this is after Jerusalem had been destroyed, maybe 50 or something years later, when they're, they're trying to regain their strength after Rome had defeated them, and maybe they were going to try to get some people together and try, to, uh, and try to, to take it back. And he says this, Where is the city that was believed to have God himself inhabiting therein? It is now demolished to the very foundations and has nothing but the monument of it preserved. I mean, the camp of those that had destroyed it, which, which dwells upon its ruins. And that is it. There you go. That's what you need to know. This voice from ancient history is telling you who would know he's a guy that is a, a, a rebel fighter mad because they destroyed Jerusalem living in Masada outside Jerusalem, probably grew up in Jerusalem, but now is not allowed to go back there. And he says, nothing, nothing was there except for the, the Roman camp which destroyed it, which lines up perfectly with Josephus, who said that they essentially stationed their whole attack on Jerusalem from Fort Antonia, which is uh, perfectly in line with this. If you finally defeat the Jews and burn it all down, except, of course, for your fort, and, and you destroy the entire city, then, then uh, why are you going to destroy the camp? Why are you going to destroy also your camp? You wouldn't. You would leave it there. And that's why for 2,000 years... The only thing there was uh, was that fort, and in the in the videos and stuff, they kind of lead with a lot of the information about like why we came to even believe that the Temple of Solomon was there, and there was no agreement. Even in the fourth century, Jewish people were arguing about where it was. Nobody had any idea where it was. They had completely forgotten. Everybody had completely forgotten. The Dome of the Rock uh, is a if you've ever seen pictures of that rock, it's a jagged rock. Uh, certainly not a rock you'd put the Ark of the Covenant on. It's not a threshing floor rock. It's not any kind of thing like that. It's a, it's actually got an interesting possibility of what that actually was, which is probably maybe even the place where Jesus was uh, judged. Uh, it's a long story, but uh, but basically, um, basically, yeah, it's it was that Dome of the Rock was kind of christened that during the Crusades. Somebody called it the Temple of Domini, the Temple of God. And it just sort of stuck and just became the place where people thought the temple was because they didn't know they were crusaders, not archaeologists. And um, anyway, it just kind of stuck and it kind of just became the thing to say, even though uh, nobody had a really good reason for saying it. And he goes through, I think, in those those videos, uh, it's pretty interesting because uh, you can really follow that logic. So uh, just a couple other things on for Antonia. Uh Josephus also said, and I don't have the quote here, uh, but he said that it was obscured from the north. He was saying that here's the temple, and Joseph is saying, and this is the north. Josephus says that if you're coming to Jerusalem from the north, you're walking down here, do 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 do, you can't see the temple because it's entirely obscured by the Fort Antonia. 
And of course, that makes sense if this huge temple mount is the uh, is Fort Antonia, and this is the temple over here. But try to imagine that with the official view. This completely obscures this. It's absurd. It's absolutely absurd. Unless you're like Josephus is right here. And that's what Josephus, a, prom, a prominent historian, was standing right here. And he says, I, you cannot see the temple if you are approaching it from the north. If you are 50 feet right here directly in front of it, you can't see the temple. Um, no, he's talking about what he means to say. Uh, that, that it was completely obscured from the north, which, of course, it is if Fort Antonia is uh, the, what we call the Temple Mount. Um, Josephus said that Fort Antonia was composed of, seemed to be composed of several cities. He talked about how busy it was and how much stuff was going on within there, which, of course, makes no sense in that little tiny thing. Uh, the Bordeaux P Pilgrim, I don't have visuals for this, but he's a guy very early on that says uh, basically he all he could see from his hotel room basically was the walls of this Roman fort, which if you can, you, we know where he was staying and we know which direction he was pointing to. And he was essentially describing what we now call the Temple Mount, but he just called it a Roman fort, the, uh, the Pilgrim of Borde uh, Bordeaux. Oh yeah, in Acts 21:32, it says they ran down to them standing on and so basically this is a situation where uh, something was happening in the temple in the Bible and there's stairs right here actually, right here. They ran down and this is obviously down slope here. It says that the Roman soldiers ran down to them to take care of it. Um, real briefly, I'm not going to go into too much of this. I'll just talk about some of the archaeology stuff. I have, you know, watched some of the stuff that uh, Cornuke was talking about um, and kind of followed him through some of these archaeological digs. It seems like he's been very, very... Uh, um, serious about this. He's gotten into places a lot of people don't get to in Jerusalem, and he's found a lot of stuff in the Gion Spring or uh, talked with the people that have found stuff. Anyway, lots of interesting finds, uh, all of presses and uh, places where sacrificial stuff would happen. As I mentioned, all this stuff coming from the Gihon Springs area underneath that show channels that would carry blood and all these other things. Coins found under the uh, temples uh, that dated to the uh, period um, basically showing that it can't have been, that the walls that we currently think of as the uh, uh, Temple Mount were much, much, much later uh, built because there was like a coin from whatever it was, the, um, uh, I can't remember the date of the coin, but it basically couldn't have been built uh, when they said it would have been built. It must have been much later than that. All right, in this section, I want to talk about some responses to this theory and talk a lot about them. Uh, as with any theory, I think it's really important, especially if it's stuff that I don't know about. I'm certainly no expert in archaeology or whatever. You need to listen to other the other side of the story. And I think that if you do that, I, I've, I'm going to point out two people in particular, Joseph Good and uh, this uh, Rittmeyer guy, what he uh, has written a lot on his website. He's also written a paper against the original book about this by Dr. Ernest Meyer. Uh, so yeah, Lean Rittmeyer uh, has written a paper published in uh, the Bible in Spade. So it's a biblical, biblical archaeology magazine. And that is his sort of uh, bag, right? Uh, so I'm going to go through some of these arguments. And I think you'll see 
that these arguments are just really bad. If you watch this video with Joseph Good, you're going to immediately recognize what a bad argument is. He starts off with ad hominems, calls everybody sinners that believes this, really light on uh, facts and really uh, heavy on uh, everything else. And But he does have some facts we're going to deal with that, or I say facts, claims that we're going to deal with as we get into this. Uh, Joseph Good is... Um, a Jew, so he's not going to make some of the arguments that uh, Rittmeyer will make, and he's going to actually make arguments from the Mishnah and other things that Rittmeyer won't make. So let's start off with Rittmeyer. He was the first person, when I mentioned this on Twitter, somebody had said, ah, but Rittmeyer, check it out, he's the guy to go to. So um, so I looked it up, and I, I think the best sort of place to go is his paper that he wrote on this. And let's just see the things that he starts off with. Really, he, he, he begins some of his refutations with two main things. He says uh, that Martin tries to derive further support from his theory from the book of Revelation. And I, I don't know, I didn't read Martin's book, but I certainly, you know, in the book of Revelation, it's talking about a future temple in which waters will flow from the temple. Uh, we're told that those who are thirsty could drink from the fountain. And he's like, well, but that's in the future, obviously. I mean, that is what we call a straw man. And he leads out of the gates with one of the biggest straw man ever. Uh, a, a thing that nobody, why would you start this whole thing with this? Can't, it can't be the, the city of David because in the book of revelation, that was in the future. Like, did I mention anything about that verse in this presentation? No, of course not. So why lead with an argument for a guy who's writing a paper here? He starts off with a very inconsequential argument. His next argument is really kind of uh, difficult to understand. Where is Zion? Now, if you remember, the first thing that I talked about was that, that uh, David conquered the city of David, which is called Zion. I didn't read, I didn't go through a lot of what uh, David uh, or Robert Cornuke does in his books and everything, and a lot of other people do, is they just go through all the biblical uh, places where you can see that the Bible is talking about Zion being a hill in the city of David, and that Zion is definitely the hill. There's like whatever it was, 30 verses. Everybody knows Zion is, is a hill in the city of David. Yes, and so what he's what what he's doing, and actually Joseph Good does the exact same thing, is he said they say, well Zion is Jerusalem. It's just Jerusalem. That's just shorthand for Jerusalem. There's no need to call it. Well, actually, some they will actually say, well yeah, it kind of is the hill in the city of David, like the Bible exactly expressly says, but it also later became known as the entire city of Jerusalem, which is which is a poetic license, if anything, right? I mean, it's kind of like any other thing where you're talking about something specific. Uh, the Bible does this all the time where, it, for example, Israel. Israel technically is the name for what Jacob had his name changed to Israel. And Israel technically is just referring to the northern 10 tribes. But also Israel sort of became known as just what it's called today. Israel is just everything. The whole land is now called Israel. Um and that's just how that worked. But it doesn't mean it's doesn't make it any less that the Bible says that Jacob's name was changed to Israel. <laughs> you know, it doesn't mean that the specific thing is wrong just because now a general thing is is right. So that's actually their argument against what I think is one of the best arguments that the Bible says that the temple was on Zion, on the Mount Zion, where the 
threshing floor was sold to from the Jebusite Ornon or whatever in the city of David. That's where the temple is, according to the Bible. It's not outside the temple, the, the, the city of David. And here, their argument against that is like, well, no, Zion is sometimes the whole city of Jerusalem. It's just not a good argument. It just, it, it reeks of a bad argument. All right. So the next thing that I want to talk about is they will say that the, the temple, that Josephus said that the temple was 600 cubits by 600 cubits. That's what they say Josephus said, 600 by 600 cubits. Now this says feet right here. This, this is more accurate, but they will say that uh, Josephus said that the temple was 600 by 600 cubits. And if it was 600 by 600 cubits, then it would not fit in the city of David confines, this walled city. It would be just too big for that. And then they would go, they go into these long tirades about how it would overhang the city of David and go places where they have archaeological evidence that it, they couldn't have been there in the other time or whatever. So it really all rests on Josephus. Is, did Josephus really say that the temple was 600 cubits by 600 cubits? That's a foot and a half by 600. So what is that? I don't know, like eight, 800 and something feet, right? I don't know. Huge, basically. Did Josephus say that? Because they definitely say that. And one of the reasons that they say that is because that's kind of what it says in the Mishnah, something written much, much, much later than anybody, any eyewitness ever would have known. Um, but so anyway, so that a lot of people go there. But what did Josephus say? And I'm going to quote here. Uh, let's see if I got my Josephus quote. Well, here's something. There, There's a simple explanation for this description. Let me read the whole thing so you get, this is from Rittmeyer, that guy who I just uh, talked about, where it's, it's referring to him. It says, in the quest, Rittmeyer writes the following, it is not easier to understand that the Herodian second temple, the root, the root of the problem lies in the fact that the two major historical sources we have at our disposable, disposal, namely the writings of Josephus and the Masorect Midot from the uh, Tract Midot, or measurements of the Mishnah, seem to contradict each other. The subject becomes even more complicated if one tries to impose conflicting measurements given in, the, given in these works onto uh, the Temple Mount as we know it today. Then the author of this article continues, there is a simple explanation for the discrepancy, quote, discrepancy between Josephus's measurements of the temple and those recorded in the Medot, which Rittmeyer references above. Josephus gives the measurement of walls of the walls of the temple as 400 cubits, which is about 600 feet, not 600 cubits, on each side, while the Mishnah records the measurement at 500 cubits, that's 750 feet per side. According to Martin, the larger dimension of 500 cubits, 750 feet per side, was the size of the camp of the Levites, this being a legal definition. This square area of the camp of the Levites, known as the Temple Mount, had no walls surrounding it. Apparently, there is no discrepancy between the measurements of Josephus and those reflected in the Mishnah, Midot, as they refer to two different entities, specifically the Temple on the one hand and the camp of the Levites on the other. Well, that's interesting. I had heard that. Now it makes more sense. But I will say that other people do change Josephus to say 600 cubits. You will see that. I think Joseph Good is the one I'm getting that from. But apparently Rittmeyer is a little bit more uh, accurate here, but he's doing a different thing and, and not understanding apparently that Josephus, who said it to, did not say 600 cubits by 600 cubits, said it was 400 cubits on each side, which would perfectly fit into the city of David. Uh, the 500 cubits or 750, which would not fit into the city of David, re referred to in the Mishnah, is actually a reference to the quote camp of the Levites, which is 
as he says here, a legal de- de- definition about the essentially the authority of the Levites over that complex, but not the temple itself, which it doesn't say the temple itself, of course. So even if there is a discrepancy, you can technically have the Mishnah and Josephus correct. Just a few more things I want to hit. Um, so on this idea that Jesus left the temple, he was walking away with his disciples. They came up to him and pointed out the buildings, buildings, plural. Do you not see all these things? He replied, truly, I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. It's pretty serious business. He's looking at buildings. He's talking about all these things. He says, not one stone here. You know, I think that Jesus was talking about the temple and he was absolutely correct if he was referring to the temple, that in the foundation of the temple and, and the temple itself was completely gone. It, as we saw in those old pictures, it was turned into a field. There literally was nothing left of it. Not one stone was left. It was all turned into a field. Now, they will have to argue that what Jesus really meant was that they were just going to clear all the buildings off the top of this temple. And I I get that. That's fine. It's it's one of those things I could see myself arguing at some point that uh, what he meant was just the temple itself. Not one stone was left of the temple. Um, I don't feel like that fits the context of Matthew 24 uh, that well because of those other things I mentioned, the all the buildings and the all these things and the one stone here. But let's just say for the sake of argument, it is. But I don't think that actually makes sense in the context of what happened in 70 AD. And here I am taking Josephus, and I, I really, again, encourage you to read uh, the Wars of the Jews, especially that last part about uh, Titus, you know, running up and trying to get his men to stop destroying the temple, just this huge inferno that happened. Josephus describes it like, I mean, it's like a blockbuster movie, really. Uh, this whole, I mean, people were just, it's just awful. But the fire got so hot, and it was kind of an accidental fire. Nobody really meant it to, uh, and meant it to burn that quick. They wanted to take all this gold. They had, there was a huge treasury within the temple. There's all the gold all around the temple. I mean, there's money everywhere in this thing, and they wanted it. They were Roman. They had been they had been there for far too long. They had dealt with some of the worst unexpected war that ever. They just hated uh, the Jews at this point, and they wanted some spoils, but. And Josephus describes it just didn't work out that way. The fire burned it all. It burnt the entire treasury or whatever. So my point here is that the reason why, and Josephus describes it, they dug up the entire foundations on everything is because they wanted to get to the gold. And why would you stop at a stone floor which had cracks in it? You know, did the gold just go there? Uh, what's the even point in digging up the foundations if uh, in, in that scenario? In other words, I don't see... I mean, you have to dig up the foundations if your goal is to to get the gold that goes uh, down in the cracks. Um, a couple other things that people say, uh, a trumpet stone was found somewhere like in the dirt over here. They call it the trumpet stone. It had two letters. Nobody really knows what it says, but it was finished on three sides. People, people say it must be from the temple. Uh, I don't really understand that argument that well. I think I've had I've heard from Cornuke and others that uh, you know even if it was what they say it was I mean then when that's a big if where it lay it's lying there is a big question about you know where it originated from anyway considering that literally every one of these stones got 
picked up and built somewhere else in the city by the Romans and the and the Persians and or the rather the the Ottomans and and the Crusaders and everybody else that came after that was using these stones to do all kinds of stuff. So the location of a stone where it fell is is a big ask, even if the stone is what you say it is. So I didn't follow that one that much, but it seemed kind of like a shot in the dark on their side. Um, one is the threshing floor uh, issue. They say, well, a threshing floor. Let's see if I can get a picture of the topography a little bit better here. Um, I suppose we'll just have to work with what we got. Um, the threshing floor, and remember, this is kind of a slanted kind of area. This is higher ground than this. And they would say that or Ornan, the, the, the Jebusite, he wouldn't have put the threshing floor not anywhere but on the top of a mountain. And that is an argument that people make. But threshing floors are not always on top of the mountain. And uh, uh, they are actually just where the wind is. And it actually makes a lot less sense to put them on top of a big mountain like that or any big mountain like that. Because think of all the extra work that you have to do. Now you got to bring your carts loaded with the entire crop up a hill. I mean, it's just a whole big mess if all you need to do is just find a place for, for wind. So I think that's all of the notes I had. There were a few other things, mostly Josephus-related stuff that I didn't mention. For example, I can't remember who it was. I think it was Rittmeyer in his paper. He is a little deceptive here. He talks about how Josephus uh, says that the entire temple, the foundations of the temple were destroyed, were uprooted. Um, and I was like, I, I read that. I was like, if Josephus says that the, rather in Fort, Fort Antonia, Josephus says that the foundations of Fort Antonia were demolished or something. And I was like, well, if that's true, if Josephus said the foundations from the, the entire Fort Antonia was demolished, then we've got a real big problem. So that was one of the cases. I actually went back and read the entire thing of that section about uh, uh, the Fort Antonia aspect and what Josephus was talking about. And just and, and this lean Rittenmeyer basically uh, says that that it was destroyed when really Josephus was saying that they took a foundation stone. Let's see if I can get this during the war. Okay. Remember what they took a foundation stone somewhere out of, out of here so that Josephus could find a way to come and talk to, I don't know where at that point it was before the war was hot and heavy in the last stand here. So it was probably somewhere down here or somewhere where the people were where Josephus was able to come out there and talk to the leader of the, the, the rebellion and Josephus was in their language able to plead with them to just don't do this, to give up. Josephus, remember, was a Jew, but he was working with the Romans um, as a historian. He was a slave, and a lot of Jews don't like him because they think he's a traitor. But it, it, at least in this story, he seems to be doing his best to, to do what's right. And he's he's trying to explain, look, you know, the, you're outnumbered here and all this other stuff. They took out a foundation stone to get Josephus to do that. There's no way that an honest person could have read that and think that, in the middle of a battle, they just destroy their own fort foundations, especially considering that it's obvious that they took the foundation stone out to let Josephus through to talk to somebody. All right, so real quickly, I just want to touch on what does it all mean for you if it is, if this is the temple, if the temple mount we currently think of as the temple mount is actually Fort Antonia and the real temple can, um, is over here, you know, uh, not being 
you know, not being occupied by the Dome of the Rock, what does that mean? So what I mean by that, that is that the reason that the Jews don't build the temple now is because the Dome of the Rock is sitting on what they think is the Temple Mount. The Dome of the Rock, of course, is the third holiest Muslim site, and it would start World War III if they tore it down and built a temple there. So the, most of the Jewish world believes that this Fort Antonia is the Temple Mount, which is what the Western Wall is. They're all praying at essentially a Roman fort, if this is true. And that's a big implication, essentially, for Judaism. Uh, so, you know, right off the bat, a lot of people would say, well, the implications of this is that the Jews can build the temple now, you know? They can build it, and of course, that's not a great thing for us. I know I know, a lot of Christians get excited about this kind of stuff, but that's not, you don't want to do that. That's the, that, that's not, that's the Antichrist that's going to sit in that, not uh, Jesus, right? So, um, so it's not a good thing to rebuild the temple, but uh, they could do it technically without starting a war. I mean, they probably still would start a war if they built a temple, but uh, even if it wasn't on that site, but but hypothetically they could do that and not start a war if the whole of Jerusalem could be uh, on board with recognizing that this was the true temp that the city of David was a true uh, temple. On the other hand, it could mean, in terms of eschatology, eschatology, that nothing changes, that everybody still continues to believe that the Western Wall is the and the Temple Mount is the Temple Mount, and the scenario in which you know uh, they do tear down the uh, the Al-Aqsa Mosque and the Dome of the Rock or whatever and rebuild the Temple, except that they don't care because they've embraced the Antichrist, who is a man uh, that cannot be defeated in battle who is like the beast, who can make war with him. They worship the beast because of that uh, ability. His ability to not be defeated in war was a reason to worship him, among other things, including his deadly wound being healed, but that's not until later. Um, so it could be that nothing changes, that the Antichrist, among his many, many deceptions, will just roll with this one too, that the temple over there will remain in obscurity maybe forever, maybe forever. I think that even the rebuilt Jerusalem uh, looks a lot different. I don't even think that the actual temple location is really even anywhere near the city. Some people, scholars, think it's in Shiloh and others, Ramat Rahel and some other places in Israel just based on Ezekiel's dimensions and a lot of other things. But my point is that it could just be fade into obscurity or it could be that the Antichrist or whomever says, look, convinces people that the city of David is the real temple. I, I think it, it basically could go either way. I don't see much of a problem either way with any of those scenarios. Um, so implications, I have to say, for me, are pretty minimal. But the reason that I like it um, is because it makes me a better watchman. If I'm 100% aware of this issue, I'm, I'm more prepared to watch for the scenarios that happen in the future, right? I don't know exactly how it's all going to shake down and the exact nature of the false teachings that these false prophets and false Christ and particularly the false Christ and the false prophet are going to preach. But it helps us to know these things so that even if it doesn't come in our generation, we can pass down to our children and to other people these things that we're supposed to watch for and and the information that may help us to uh, to make more informed decisions when that time comes. Um, so I suppose 
it's a little bit of wondering about how many angels can dance on the head of the pen. And maybe you'll have different opinions about this. And maybe you'll say, well, there is a lot of implications because of X, Y, and Z. And I certainly would agree with that in terms of the Jewish mindset. A lot could change. Anyway, thank you for uh, sticking with me if you did. And you could subscribe to subscribe to the, uh, the audio podcast at my website, BibleProphecyTalk.com. Links in the description if you're watching this on YouTube. And uh, if you're watching it on uh, or you're listening to it in the podcast, go to YouTube, type in uh, Bible Prophecy Talk to watch this video.